Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to now just continue to to worship the Lord, but this time we'll do it through the study of His Word and sharing the truth of God's Word together. So if you wouldn't mind, grab the Bible that you may have brought with you today, or whether it's your phone or your iPad. Uh, turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. That's where we are at these days uh, as part of our our study of the life of Elijah together. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We keep some in the back just in case that would be of help to you. And then in your bulletin, uh, if you don't know this part of the drill, then reach in, grab a little note page that we have prepared. We kind of just do this to give you some hooks to kind of hang uh, your hat on and, and maybe we'll save you a little time and uh, writing stuff down. At the same time, you might be able to return to these thoughts this week or at another time, and they will be a benefit to you as well. So good to have that little note page out there. First Kings chapter 18 is where we're going to hang out today. I recently came across uh, a story about a young guy who went to Canada in search of a job as a logger, and specifically, he wanted to be an axe man for a large lumber company. And so he approaches the foreman of a particular company, and he, and he asked if there were any openings, and, and the foreman said, well, that all depends Let's see you drop that tree over there, which he proceeded to do. He stepped up, set his feet, and the tree was quickly on the ground. The foreman was impressed, and he said, you start on Monday. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday came and went. At the end of the day, Thursday, the foreman pulls him aside and says, pick up your paycheck on your way out today. And the young guy says, but I thought you paid on Friday. Well, normally we do, but we're letting you go. You're just not productive. We keep a record of what each man produces every day, and you've dropped from first place on Monday to eighth place today. And the young guy was just dumbstruck. He said, but I'm not, I'm not lazy. I'm, I mean, I arrive first, I leave last, and I often work through my breaks. And the foreman detected the sincerity of his voice and And he thought for a moment, and then he asked him this most insightful question. Young man, do you sharpen your axe every day? And the young man answered, well, no, sir. I don't have time to sharpen my axe. I work too hard. And the foreman said, you know what? You're going to stay employed if you'll sharpen your axe And you'll be much, much more productive if you sharpen your axe daily. Now, what does that have to do with anything, right? Well, church family, as I reflected on this young man's answer and the foreman's response to him, I found myself applying those words to our context here as a church family as you and I strive to do life in Jesus, as we strive to do life with Jesus. These words have application. There isn't one of us in this room who knows the Lord Jesus who does not want to hear one day when we stand before him face to face, there's not one of us who doesn't want to hear his words from Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you want to hear those words one day? You do. I know you do. I want to hear those words. We all want to hear those words from Jesus one day. And yet how many of us, if pressed, might be forced to admit that we are so busy 
doing the rest of life that we often don't make time to sharpen our spiritual acts daily. And then as a consequence of that, we're not as fruitful, we're not as effective, we're not as productive in our service for Jesus' sake as we would want to be and as he would want us to be for him. You know, we're crazy busy Christians. But are we being as spiritually effective and productive in God's service as we could be in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our church life, in our work life, in our community life, in our friendships? Are we being as effective and productive as we could be in all of those arenas or not? We're all busy. We're working hard. Lots of movement and motion. But are we productive? Are we effective? Are we difference makers for our King and Savior? I would propose that the way that you and I answer that question is inseparably tied to the answer that we would give to the other question. Do I sharpen my spiritual acts daily? Those two go together, don't they? Yeah. Just as it did for the young logger whose effectiveness and productiveness depended on keeping his acts sharp every day, so too is it true for you and me spiritually. We've got to have a sharp spiritual axe if we're going to be effective for Jesus' sake. Agreed? So what are we talking about when we ask the question, are you, am I sharpening our spiritual axe daily? What is it that we're actually thinking about when we ask that question? Well, we're talking about getting daily spiritual refreshment, encouragement, feeding, building up, conviction, comfort, equipping, protecting, the renewal of our soul daily from the time that we spend alone with our God in prayer and in his word, devotional feeding of the soul. Isn't that what we're talking about? When we talk about sharpening the spiritual acts of our life, but I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I don't have time to sharpen my axe. Do you ever say that? Does it ever? Maybe you don't say it. Does it ever happen in your life? <laughs> yeah, it does happen, doesn't it? It happens in your life, and, and it certainly happens in my life. Too busy to sharpen my axe daily. And because that happens... Church family, we will do well today to give our attention once again this morning to an amazing Old Testament character by the name of Elijah because he's going to teach us something about this this morning. For the past few mornings, if you've not been with us, maybe it's your first time to be at IBC, we've stepped into this, this series looking at the life of Elijah together, sharing his amazing story because he has so much to teach us about how to live well for Jesus in our day, even though he lived 2,800 years ago. We've taken possession, the very first morning that we opened up this series, we took possession of a promise that the Holy Spirit gives to us in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. And it goes like this. This is straight from the Holy Spirit to you and me. For everything that was written in the past, that means the Old Testament, was written to do what? To teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
Elijah's story has been preserved for us supernaturally by the Holy Spirit so that we can learn from it, take lessons from it, and hopefully weave those into our life stories because we're writing that story every day, aren't we? And we can take his lessons and weave them into our life story. Elijah is certainly a man who knew about the importance of sharpening his spiritual acts so that he could be at his very best and most effective for his Lord. And that is going to come out so clearly today in the sequel to the great showdown on Mount Carmel that we shared together last time. Remember that from last time? We were on Mount Carmel for an amazing day with Elijah. Quick review. This is a quick review for all of us who were here. For those who weren't, uh, just kind of bring you up to speed. Uh, The year is 850 B.C., Uh, The past 60 years, Israel has been drowning itself in pagan idol worship, thanks in large measure to the godless leadership of a series of wicked kings. The latest and worst of these kings is a guy by the name of Ahab, right? Ahab, who along with his equally wicked queen, Jezebel, has made the worship of false gods, Baal and Asherah are their names, They have made them the the, the national religion. And so God has been pushed out and Baal and Asherah have been welcomed in under the leadership of Ahab and Jezebel. But as we have learned, such blatant rejection of God by his people comes at a really steep price. So God calls Elijah into his service to be his mouthpiece, his prophet, to be his voice to rebellious Israel in this season. God announces through him that that he's going to send a a, a terrible drought upon the land and upon the people that will be so devastating and, and so severe that it's going to bring the nation to its knees physically, but also spiritually, causing the people to to question the power of these false gods, Baal and Asherah. The drought lasts for three and a half years. We've learned that. It's brutal. It's deadly. And then God tells Elijah to to go back to Ahab and let him know that upon the word of Yahweh Elohim, not upon Baal's word, but upon the word of the Lord, this drought that's been in play for these three and a half years is about to come to an end but not before this incredible contest between Baal and the Lord uh, is, is, is taken up on Mount Carmel. The nation gathers on the mount, if you remember, in, in 18, the verses uh, in the middle of this chapter. 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah are invited to join this moment. Uh, and there's one prophet to the Lord, Elijah, so the, the odds are 850 to 1 in favor of Baal. Each side prepares a respective sacrifice to their God and whichever God responds with consuming fire, well, that's the God you want to worship, right? That's the substance of the contest. Well, as we learned, Baal never shows up despite 850 prophets doing their very best to to get him into the game. He never shows up. Elijah then calls on the Lord, a 30-second prayer. Remember that? And God does, in fact, show up in no uncertain terms. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. 
Man, what a moment. The people of Israel see this and they they hear and now they know that they've been deceived by the prophets of Baal and by this false god. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Yahweh Elohim. And then at Elijah's command, which is really God's command, the people put to death 850 prophets to Baal and Asherah. They're taken down to the Kishon Brook at the foot of Mount Carmel. The name Kishon is is the Hebrew word that means to ensnare. So how fitting it is that these prophets will meet their end at the brook of the ensnarer. Because that's exactly what they have been, right? To the people of Israel. They've been ensnarers. They've been trap setters. And now that's all come to light and they've been exposed. It has been one incredible, unbelievable day. Packed with enough power and action and emotion to last a whole lifetime. A day to be talked about for generations to come. In fact, we're still talking about it. To put it another way, Elijah has been swinging his spiritual axe all day long. But the day's not done. It will not end on this somber note of death, but with the life giving music of thunder and rain falling on parched ground. That's how the day's going to end. Elijah has witnessed the end of Israel's unbelief, so now it's time for him to witness the end of this this terrible drought. Verse 41, follow along in your Bible as I read for us the next section in in his life story that we're going to share. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And that would be the Mediterranean Sea. You remember Mount Carmel sits very close to the, to the, the western edge of, of the country. And, and if you look to the west, you can look right out over the Mediterranean. So he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and he looked and he said, well, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. We're going to stop right there. (laughs) That will give us enough to work with this morning. National Israel's heart has been turned back to the Lord, just exactly what was supposed to happen. Back to him. The people have been utterly broken. They've been crushed. They have been physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually brought to their knees by the drought and then by the demonstration of the fire from heaven. The last remaining loyalties to Baal have been, have been put to death in the riverbed of Kishon. 
They are a people that are stripped down, bowed low before the Lord, humbled and sorry. And so now it is time for rain to come. Church family, let's not miss a neat truth that is kind of woven into that, to that, that part of the story. A truth that is as timely and relevant today as it was for Israel. And the truth could be framed in, in three statements. Before there can be blessing, there must be what? Brokenness. Before there can be refreshing, there must be repentance. Before there can be new life, the old life must be what? Put to death. Brothers and sisters, think about this now, applying this, these principles to our own story in Jesus. How did you and I come to enjoy this wonderful relationship that we have with our God. How did that happen for us? How did that happen for you, for me? It wasn't until we realized by the grace of God that there was a drought, a drought unfolding in our souls, a spiritual drought resulting from sin in our lives that that left us barren and dry, and dying, right? And so it was that as broken, repentant sinners, we came to Jesus in simple faith, believing that He alone has the living water that can produce a spring of living water in our lives unto eternal life. We came to Jesus' cross and we we fell to our knees and we confessed that He is God in the flesh and that He died in our place, that He paid our penalty that we could never pay. Our brokenness at the foot of the cross of Jesus becomes our blessing, doesn't it? Our, Our repentance becomes our spiritual refreshing. And our dead heart is made alive by Jesus. What glorious truth. And God delights to draw near to the broken, repentant heart, doesn't he? To end the drought of death and separation in hell and bring rain in the form of love and life, forgiveness, and a personal relationship that our souls were made for. The end of the drought, the coming of the rain, they go together. And that's exactly what happens now on Mount Carmel. The drought has done its work. The showdown has confirmed that there's only one God and his name is Yahweh. And so it's time for rain. But, but, but again, Elijah has been swinging his spiritual axe all day long. And so it is going to be time for him to sharpen his axe as well. And how will he do that? Well, that's what we get to watch. That's what we get to talk about. It's late afternoon on this long day. Elijah says to King Ahab in verse 41, you better grab a quick bite to eat. (laughs) You know, get a power lunch going here. Make it quick. Why? Because Elijah says, I hear the sound of rain. No, make, make that heavy rain. No, no, strike that. Make that a torrential downpour. I hear the sound of a torrential downpour. And if you don't make tracks, you're going to be caught in it. Ahab and Elijah part company. He's going to go eat. And what's Elijah going to do? Well, 
He's going to go sharpen his spiritual axe. That's what he's going to do. With the moments we have left, let's see how he does that and see if we might be able to lay hold of uh, some useful takeaways for our own lives by his example. The first thing we notice is that Elijah, as you look at your little note page, the first thing we know Elijah does is in, in sharpening his spiritual axe is he makes some alone time with his God. That's what he does first. Verse 42, but Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. In other words, he is going to purposely and deliberately find a place off by himself, a place of quietness where he can just get some time with his God, collect himself, take a breath, listen, perhaps talk, but mostly listen and just recover. It's been a day. It no doubt would have come as a welcomed moment for him. The day has been so demanding. Nothing but noise and motion and people and action. And and it required intense focus. Now, if you and I were writing this scene for maximum impact, we might be inclined to think that it would be much more impressive that this day should, should kind of come to a close having everyone witness the fire from heaven, consuming the altar and everything as as it did, and then immediately in that moment, Elijah cries out to God and says, Now let it rain! And it just came. Would that not be impressive? Fire from heaven followed by this incredible torrential downpour. Everyone would be more convinced than ever that that Yahweh Elohim is in charge. But that's not how the story goes. Elijah withdrew, we are told. He knew. He knew that he needed to be alone with his God. But notice on your note page that I didn't write that, that part of sharpening the spiritual axe requires that you be in an absolutely private place. I did not say that. Elijah is not in a private moment, is he? He's in an alone moment, but he's not in a private moment because who else is there? His servant is there. But he is nevertheless alone with his God. Psalm 46.10 says, be still. God says to us, be still and know that I am God. What's the key word there? Be still. Two words. Be still. Be still. You know, we can be alone with God and be in some incredibly public places, right? You could be alone with your God in the middle of an incredibly packed airport terminal, right? Sitting there surrounded by hundreds of people moving and going. You can be alone. Elijah is alone. He's not in a private place, but he is alone with his God. And we want to make sure that we catch that. Brothers, sisters, there are Christians, perhaps some in this room right now, who from the moment that the alarm goes off in the morning until their head hits the pillow at night, there has never been any alone time in the whole day. There's been no axe sharpening the whole day. Do you know of this? Do you experience this? I experience this. You know, Jesus himself, God in flesh, deity in skin and bone, did not for one moment think that he could be effective 
without making alone time with the Father. You realize that? You know, how grateful we should be for a, a little verse tucked into the opening chapter of Mark's gospel. It's Mark 1, verse 35. If it's not a verse that you've highlighted in your Bible, I might suggest that you would do that so that you never miss this. I'm so glad this verse is here. here here's what it says about Jesus. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a what? A desolate place, an alone place. And there he prayed. What is Jesus doing in verse 35 of Mark 1? He's sharpening his axe. That's what he's doing. And church family, brothers, sisters, if Jesus needed to do that, man alive, how much more do we need to do that? Fellow Christian, here's a truth that still holds for modern day servants of God, which is what all of us are who are in Jesus by faith right now. It was true for Elijah, but it is still true for us. Any service or ministry that we do in public will only be as lastingly effective to the degree that we are alone with our God daily. Would you agree with that? Are we making that happen or are we just too busy to have time to sharpen our axe. Elijah made the time on the most busy day of his life. Now, the second thing we notice about Elijah is that he sharpens his axe with an impossible to miss humility. Where do we see that? Well, did you notice his posture? His posture, verse 42. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Well, that's quite the picture, isn't it? What is that? That's a picture to me of humility. Before the people earlier, Elijah stands tall, man. He is, he is standing tall. But here he comes before his Lord uh, as, as a weak man who knows what he is. And what is he? Well, he's just like you and me. He's a sinner, right? He's a sinner and he's a servant. And he knows that. Earlier, he had been bold as a lion before those 850 prophets to Baal and Asherah. Now he hides his face and he comes before his God because he knows who he is. It's been said that those who know God best feel most unfit to draw before him. Would you, would you resonate with that thought? Yeah. I think the apostle John who on the night in the upper room before Jesus' crucifixion, I think he understands this, this, this statement. Those who know God best feel most unfit to draw before him. Think of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples on the night before the cross. They gather in a room. They share a meal. And during that meal, we're told that John was so close to Jesus that he laid his head on his chest. Do you remember this? Just in this moment of closeness and, and, and friendship. John will go on to write the gospel that bears his name. He will go on to write three epistles that bear his name. He'll write the revelation by the inspiration of the Spirit. And yet when he sees the glorified Lord Jesus in that vision on Patmos, it says that he fell at the feet of Jesus as though he were a dead man. He knew him well. And yet he knew to be humble. When Moses stood before the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, 
chapter 3, we remember that, that he, he was wearing his sandals. And what does God say to him? Take off your sandals, man. You're standing on what? Holy ground. Yeah. What this reminds us of is that we enter into our alone place with our God with the same kind of posture as Elijah. And if it's not physically like that, certainly our hearts would reflect that, right? That we're on our knees, our head between our knees. The Holy Spirit writes through Peter in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's how Elijah sharpens his axe, alone and humbly. And then if you flip your note page over, we notice third that Elijah sharpens his axe by, by prayer. And he bowed himself down on the earth. What's he doing? He's praying, isn't he? He's praying. Now, it doesn't specifically tell us that, but this is the posture of prayer that we see over and over in Scripture. And anyone who spends time with Elijah learns that, man, this guy was a guy who prayed. He prayed all the time. Let's remember that, that it was a prayer that Elijah prayed back in chapter 17 that, that brought this drought on in the first place. James, a writer in the New Testament who was writing on the topic of prayer, turns to Elijah as his example of a prayer. James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Don't you love that? He was a guy just like us, no different than us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. We heard Elijah pray in chapter 17, a very simple pleading prayer for a, dead, a widow's dead son. Do you remember that? The widow at Zarephath? Bring him back to life. And what does God do? God raises that little boy back to life. And then we just heard last week this, this, this impassioned 30-second prayer that, that Elijah prays on Mount Carmel that brings down the fire of God, right? He's going to pray again in chapter 19 in a moment of great despair. He's so discouraged and he's going to pray. To study the life of Elijah as we are doing is to study the life of a prayer. And again, the conclusion we must inevitably reach is that in order to be effective and, and productive in the service and ministry of our God, it's going to require that we spend alone time with humility and in prayer to be effective. But then we would quickly add and notice that, that prayer time has to be rooted and built upon the promises of God. It has to be rooted in the word of God. Elijah sharpens his spiritual axe on the grinding wheel of prayer but that prayer is rooted in the word of God. Now, how do we pull that out of this passage? You know, Elijah's gone to the top of the mountain because, because God made a promise back in chapter 18, verse 1. Do you remember what the promise was? If you want to go back there, here's what it says. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will do what? I will send rain upon the earth. What is that? That's a promise, isn't it? That's God making a promise. Elijah is here in this place of prayer precisely because God made a promise. Someone might be right in asking, well, then why was it necessary for him to pray at all? I mean, God's already going to send the rain. He said he was going to send it. Why should he pray? 
It's necessary for him to pray because this is how he will be able to express his faith in the promise. Right? God, you said, I believe you for it. Thank you. I like the way one writer puts this idea. God's promises are the signed checks that we must endorse by faith and present for payment by prayer. Don't you like that? I love that. That is so good. I mean, I can't think of a better prayer to pray, a safer request to make before my God than one that he has already promised he's going to do. That's safe praying. And that's what Elijah does. James chapter 4 verse 2 says to you and me, though, that we often don't have because why? Because we haven't asked. We haven't asked. Brothers and sisters, how can we be effective in the service of our master if we are not daily in prayer sharpening our spiritual axes on the wheel of the promises that he has given to us in his word? God's promises are the sign checks that we endorse by faith and present for payment by prayer. And that is the other thing we notice about Elijah here in this axe sharpening moment, that he has an expectant faith as he comes before his God. Where do we see that? Well, if we look again at verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is what? There is the sound of the rushing of rain. Now that is most interesting. It's interesting because Elijah hears something that Ahab does not hear at all, right? He hears the sound of a torrential rain. But here's the really interesting part of that line is that uh, the sky is just as clear, just as cloudless, and just as brittle with drought in that moment in verse 41 Nothing's changed. It's still, it's full on drought. And what does Elijah hear? The sound of rushing rain. The only thing in the sky lingering in this moment is the smoke coming up from that burned altar. There's no clouds. There's no indication. What this tells us is that the ear of faith hears what the physical eye cannot see. That's true for Elijah. So confident was Elijah that the prayer for rain was going to be answered that the storm already rumbles in his ears. That's an expectant faith, isn't it? He hasn't even put words to a prayer yet, and he can hear the rain. I love that thought. That's an expectant faith. Six times, Elijah sends his servant over the crest of the mountain to look over the Mediterranean Sea, and six times he comes back with the same words. The sky is empty. The sky is empty. There's nothing. And each time, what does Elijah do? He places his head between his knees and he sharpens his axe some more on the promise of God. It's not a matter for Elijah of whether God would answer with rain. The only question in his mind was what? When are you going to do it? When? Not if, but when. While God never feels a need to conform to our timetables, one thing faith knows is that while he may not be early, he's never late, right? That's what faith knows. 
Maybe this is a truth that is particularly needful for you this morning because you have in your mind brought some request, some, some desire to your God, and it comes with a timetable. Maybe what needs to happen today is to remember that, that he's never late. He's never late, and he has heard you, right? Yeah, faith waits. Every time that the servant came back with the sky is empty, Elijah is sharpening his axe a little bit more. He's getting it down to that razor's edge. And then finally, on the seventh look by the servant, the servant comes back with the report that on the horizon, far, far away, there is this tiny little cloud the size of a man's hand. Hardly a massive thunderhead that would be rumbling in your ears. But it was there, and that was all that Elijah needed was that, a little cloud. Verse 44, and he said, go up. He's talking to his servant. Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. But it's just the size of a man's hand. Go up and tell him. And in a little while, verse 45, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a what? A torrential downpour. Can we even begin to imagine what it must have been like for the people who have suffered so greatly under this drought, starving for three and a half years, burying their animals first and then their family and friends? It had to have been an absolutely incredible moment for them to see and hear and to feel this rain washing over them after three and a half years of drought and death. And no doubt, Elijah reveled in the rain just as much as anybody because it has been a long and trying season for him as well. The day ends with the words, Ahab jumped into his chariot and went to Jezreel. No, it doesn't end with that. But that's part of the story. Jezreel is about 25 miles from Mount Carmel. Here's how it ends. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Now those are words to circle or highlight or underline in your Bible. And he gathered up his garment because he's got this this loose-fitting garment. He gathers it up and he ties it. He tucks it into his belt so his legs are free. And he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Elijah, get this, on on what was perhaps the most demanding day of his entire life is given a supernatural divine strength to become the world's first marathon man. How cool is that? Did you know that, that, that the epic endurance race, the marathon, he's the originator of that thing? And, he, and, and what, he, what he does is he outruns Ahab's horse-drawn chariot. And... and And in my little world where I paint the picture of Scripture in my mind, in my mind, as he runs in front of Ahab, he runs all the way to Jezreel, far enough in front to be in front, but never out of sight of Ahab. So that Ahab sees him the entire way, running in front of him, as if... As if Elijah is saying by the strength of the Lord, Ahab, you want this? You want this? You're going to have to catch this. Right? That is so cool. 
Why did that happen? Because the hand of the Lord was on him. That's the source of everything. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. But God's hand was on him. Brothers and sisters, it was on him because Elijah had not failed to make a lone time space for his Lord to, to be in his life on this most demanding of days. And we must not miss that. Never too busy to sharpen the axe. Always mindful of the greatness of God and, and, and our smallness. Humbly drawing into his presence by prayer. Claiming God's promises. Believing his word. And living in this, this faith-filled expectation that God is going to do great things. But he'll be pleased to use me to do them. That was Elijah. And all of that axe sharpening translated into the words, and the hand of the Lord was on him. Brother, sister, and Jesus, we have every reason to expect the same in our lives if we will learn from Elijah and do as he did. Never too busy to sharpen our spiritual axe every day. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Wow. <laughs> this has been fun, Lord. It's just been fun to be in your word and to share the life of Elijah in yet another way. And thank you for the challenges. And, and my, my plea to you, Lord, is that you would enable all of us who have been a part of this moment today, that you would not allow us to simply be hearers of your word. My prayer is that you would make us doers of it that there would be nobody in our church family who's got a dull axe and tries to, to do your work in their own strength. May we be, like Elijah was, totally committed to sharpening our axe daily, grabbing that time with you so that your hand would be upon us and that we might do great things for you, however you define the word great in our lives. Lord, in this room right now, there may be some who have really been struggling to make time with you. May this just be a, a new encouragement, a, a new incentive, a new determination as we walk out the doors, a new determination today that we're going to sharpen that axe every single day with you. Nothing's going to get in the way of that. Thank you, Lord. And we would say that all of this will happen because you have loved us first, but we do love you. And all God's people said, amen and amen.